Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's the Fallen Angel, Christopher Daniels. You are listening to The Real Wrestling Podcast. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Everybody and welcome back to the Real Wrestling Podcast. I am, of course, the Belt Guy Paul. With me today are my Real Wrestling colleagues, Kyle, and the Raw and SmackDown reviewer, Young Master JP. We have a, a very special guest with us today, all the way from America. He is a former wrestler, and he went by the name Surfer Ray Odyssey. Hey, dudes! Here we go, right back. Hey, what is this? Is this radio or what is it? Hey, what? Can we stop doing that now? I got, I got my little surfer thing in there, so what's up, guys? Glad you got. Listen, I'm really happy you asked me on this show. Um, for somebody that hasn't been in the ring in probably 13 years, haven't been on TV in 25 years, they said I'm not a household name even in the states. I mean, you have to be a pretty good wrestling fan to remember me. So I don't know if England's seen much of me, but I'm going to promise you this: after you get done this hour interview, even if you didn't know who Ray Odyssey was, I'm going to make you search me on Google <laughs> and figure out just man, watch some old matches and have some fun because I am ready to have some fun, guys. Well, that's exactly what we wanted to hear, and I can't wait for this. Uh, we, this is the sort of energy we look for. Uh, before we get into it, though, we, of course, we've got to do our, our little plugs. So if you are new around here, do smash that like and subscribe button. It really does help us grow uh, and hopefully hit our target of 1,000 subscribers before the end of the year. Uh, you can also follow us on all our social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Twitter. Uh, TikTok, we're, we're everywhere. We are like we're like a rash, you know. No cream in the world is strong enough to get rid of us. I have to get that rash line in there as always. <laughs> <laughs> so we've we've got quite a few questions lined up for you, Ray. So we're just gonna uh, we're just gonna crack on with it. So we we like to uh, ease into these sort of things. And our first question is always: Who was your favorite wrestler growing up? Oh, that's easy. Surfer Ray Odyssey. <laughs> well, you mean growing up, right? Growing up. Okay. You know what? Sorry, I hit that too early on you. Growing up, I say like, um, that. now of course it was Hulk Hogan was the big name back. I, um, I graduated high school in 1986. So I got really big in the pro wrestling. My buddies, we all liked uh, mostly the WWF product because I live in New Jersey. And at that time, you, you only saw like certain regions and territories. Like if you lived down south, you had Memphis. Or if you lived out west, you know, you saw Portland or up north is in Canada. You know, but it was different areas. So my area really, we didn't get much except for the WWF. So the only thing I knew about other territories is like when I opened up Bill Apter's magazine, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, I could read, oh, okay, AWA. And actually, so we started getting some NWA stuff too. That was mostly on TBS, but that was like, um, I think that was the worldwide wrestling which might have been the carolinas i'm not sure or maybe georgia so i did see a little bit more but but growing up hulk hogan was the guy that i liked at wrestling but roddy piper was the guy that made me want to be a wrestler so that was that was my guy piper was always he, he made me say that's what i want to do for a living you were all about that hot rod yeah uh, he was <laughs> the best he was he was an incredible wrestler there's no doubt about that and the world is worse off in the, in some ways without him i mean really I, I know you say he was a great wrestler but to me it wasn't even the wrestling because i remember back then between piper's pit and 
he very rarely even got in the ring. And when he did, it was a lot of just kicking and punching. He put on a sleeper and that was it. So not that I really liked him for his wrestling. I love just hearing him talk. And some of those Piper's pits, the, the Frankie Williams one, I mean, of course, that that sticks out. The Jimmy Snooker with the coconut, of course, was great. And which was also cool because through my career, when I went to the ICW, we actually started shooting uh, TV in the Hamburg Fieldhouse. So that is where oh, wow. Snooker got hit with the coconut. So it was always like, and it's just a, it's not a big building. The locker rooms are tiny. It's not, there's no charm to it whatsoever, except for the part where you say, that's where Snooker got hit with the coconut. So that was always cool. <laughs> I mean, a claim to fame is a claim to fame at the end of the day, isn't it? So... Oh yeah, it was great. Yeah, he said the locker rooms, like I said, they were they were tiny and they were hot, and especially working in that wetsuit. Which, boy, that <laughs> at first I thought this was a total mistake. In fact, when I started with the gimmick, um, Larry Sharp, who trained me at the Monster Factory, I went through the um, I had to, I got trained or I had to practice the tryout, and right away he came. You know, it's really not much of a tryout. What they do is they send you through a few bumps. You run the ropes. He wants to see agility, you know, some stuff like that. So he talked to me afterwards. And when I graduated high school, I was 160 pounds. Now I went to college for a year, hit the weights and started eating and uh, neglecting my books a little bit too much. So I got up to about 190, 195 and I was looked pretty good, but still I'm 5'9", 195. So I go to try out uh, with Larry at the Monster Factory. And he said right away, he says, Ray, you look like you have some potential. He said, the problem is, he says, and I'm doing it in Larry Sharp voice, you're short and there's no coaching that out of you. Okay. So you're going to have to come up with something. So right away, I was like, I, I got to have something because nobody wants to see a five, 985 pound, 95 pound guy put on weight and come up with something and get rid of your last name. I had a long last name that everybody still mispronounces. So that's when I said, I remember watching Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And Jeff Spicoli, I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, you know, the, the, the Fast Times at Ridgemont High, the, the, the Sean Penn character was phenomenal. He did a surfer gimmick, and I just said, that's that's me. That's what I want to do. So that's what I did. So if anybody sees Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you'll see I've very heavily borrowed, not stole, but very heavily borrowed a lot of Jeff Spicoli lines. The way I used to talk was Jeff Spicoli. It was, it was all that. So that's why I went to that. But again... We worked in a lot of hot buildings and with that wetsuit on, I mean, that's meant for going in the ocean, in a cold ocean and keeping <laughs> you warm. And you're going, now you're going hard and running the ropes and everything and, and, and going through those matches and you go 15 minutes and the sweat, I mean, the sweat would pour off me even before I got into the ring. So I get it in the ring. It was like being in a sauna probably. Oh, it was, it was awful, Kyle. I mean, so I did that for a little bit. I started on the independence. Now, it was either Bob Raskin or, or Rob Russett, I think, which they ran uh, a lot of shows throughout the Northeast. And I started getting a little name, and they go, oh, Ray, we saw you. We want to use you. You know, we like the surfer gimmick. And I said, well, I'm thinking about changing that around because, you know, the, the, the wetsuit's hot. So I'm going to still kind of do a beach thing, but I think I'm going to, you know, stop with the wetsuit. And, and he said, and I'll never forget this, he said, Ray, if you're not the surfer, we don't need to book you. And so that's what I learned right there. That was it. That was my spot. And of course, again, being small in 1987, when I started, I mean, that was the land of the giants. Then you were Hulk Hogan. You had to be big. You better be six, two, six, three. I'm a monster. Like I said, I'm barely five, nine. I just, I started putting on some weight. So I got over 200, but that was my way. And I said, 
you know what? There's always comedy guys. There's the bushwhackers. You know, there, there's always somebody that could be undersized, but if they can get a comedy gimmick over, you could get a spot. So that's what I was going for. And it makes you memorable, doesn't it? As soon as people remember the the surfer gimmick, they were like, oh, I remember you back in the day because of that. That's what I get. Side you know, of things. You know what, Kyle? Unfortunately, that's what I get a lot of. They go, what were you? I, I worked as Surfer Ray. Oh, so I remember the surfer guy, the guy with the with the boogie board and the wetsuit. I remember you. Yeah, okay. All right. So listen, at least he got remembered somehow. I might have to explain a little bit to guys, but uh, yeah, that that's how I usually get remembered. I, I think I do remember you. Yeah. <laughs> so what got you into wrestling and what made you kind of decide this is what I want to do kind of thing? Again, high school. Um, uh, I always liked that. And I was, I was pretty athletic. I played baseball. I played soccer. Um, and I was decent at them. Not, not a superstar, whatever. So then I said, well, you know what? I'd like to show off. So then I just started, I tried with the high school plays, you know, and, and something I could be on stage with or whatever. And any, any time there was something going on, I remember back in the day, they, they had a lip sync contest in, um, in my high school. And I decided that's for me. I said, but I got to do something memorable. So I actually dressed up in drag and did Madonna. And uh, actually you wouldn't believe it. Back then when I was 160 pounds, I looked pretty good. So I was like, <laughs> I could pass anything to show off. That's why. So I wasn't a great athlete. I wasn't a great actor, but I had a little bit of both. So I said, wrestling's just perfect you know you, you can mm. use kind of you know everything all right you said you don't have to be a stellar athlete but it helps and you don't have to be a stellar actor but it helps but if you kind of have both a little bit and wrestling's perfect it's so it's so great and i loved it just because i could get out there and i just love to show off and that that was me madonna wow <laughs> i can't I imagine it to be honest yeah See, all I'm thinking now is, are there pictures of Ray dressed as Madonna on the internet? And can I find them? (laughs) I'll tell you what, there is a video. I think my parents still have it. And it's, oof. I mean, like I said, I like showing off and I very rarely get embarrassed by anything I do. But looking back (laughs) on that, I'm like, oh boy, oh man, me and drag. And and, well, the thing (laughs) is mostly too, I was small and little. So at least if I was, bigger and you know look like i did now or at least when i was in shape i'm like okay that's that's kind of funny but i was skinny and actually i was too good looking i actually was probably a better looking girl than i was a guy so yeah that's that's not something you want to facing yeah 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 right that's not something i want to go bragging about yeah right you're a better looking girl thanks a lot guys (laughs) about when you performed it really dragged i'm moving on oh fuck off so um, we spoke uh, earlier about being trained by Larry Sharp, and also um, believe you were trained by Charlie Fulton. Is that as well? Oh, Charlie um, Fulton. Oh. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, what oh, were they like? Tra- <laughs> yeah, what were they like as trainers? You know, it, they were the best mix of what you could get. Larry was the showman. Okay, Larry could talk and shoot promos, and he was loud, and he could tell you how to act. Problem was, when you got into wrestling, a lot of times the older guys. That Larry wasn't as well liked. He was he was liked. Okay, let me don't get that wrong. But either you liked Larry or he could be annoying. Charlie Fulton, there wasn't a guy in the in this entire business that I ran in through 
anyone that has never ever said a bad word about Charlie Fulton, whether his character, the way he performed in the ring, just the way he was. So when I started training and Charlie was the best, I mean, because he trained me and he was the one that kind of pretty much taught the moves. Larry was more of the business guy and handled some of the personalities and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and he tried to get you booking, but Charlie was the in-ring guy. But I remember like after we would get done practice, we'd go sit at the bar, have a pitcher of beer, and Charlie would just talk to me. Like he really took me under his wing and, and I really appreciated it. I learned more sitting on that bar stool that helped me in the world of wrestling than I did any countless hours in the gym. That just how to, how to act, how to do everything. Charlie told me, and what he used to always say was, Listen, Ray, if you go somewhere um, and you see this guy or you see that guy, some of the old times, just mention my name. And and it was amazing because you could see when, you know, especially when I started off, I was 19 when I started, um, when I really started. But when I got to Memphis, Puerto Rico, uh, even the ICW back then, it was I was around 20. So, you know, some 20 year old kid, you know, small walking in these locker rooms and I see all these veterans around and you could see guys looking at you like, who's this kid? What's he doing here? You know? And, and as soon as I said, Charlie Fulton trained me, like the faces just changed. Like Charlie Fulton, Charlie trained you. Oh, how's old Charlie doing or whatever. And then right away I started getting accepted. And that was one of the things when I went to Puerto Rico, I went down there, I was 20 years old and uh, I, you know, there was a few Americans down there, but I ran into Bobby Jaggers and um, Dan Crawford. Bobby Jaggers actually was Charlie Fulton's old tag partner. So when, again, when I got down there, it was again, some young kid coming in. Who's this? We don't know who he is, but I said something to Bobby Jaggers and said, Hey, Charlie said, hi, Charlie trained me. And again, boom, just like that change right away. Come here. Let me induce you to boys. Come here. Come here. This guy here. Hey, Ray, Ray, Charlie Fulton trained him. Oh, Charlie trained Ray. You must be all right. In fact, I'll never hmm. forget when I was in Memphis, that was the first thing I said to Robert Fuller, Robert Fuller, when I, I introduced myself, I said, Charlie Fulton trained me. He goes, well, hell, son, if Charlie trained you, you can't be all that bad. Come on in, you know, and he get <laughs> certain acceptance from. So when Charlie said it might help a little bit, he was wrong. It helped a thousand percent. It, it, it couldn't have been just any foot better. In the door. It, was a, it was a good leg in the door. It, it yeah. was because, you know, there's so many young guys that are trying to make it and guys with way more talent than me and everything and a better look. But it, you got to have an in. You walk in there and you got to know how to act. And Charlie always told you, you, you only speak when spoken to. You shake everyone's hand. And he said, if you want to, you can drop my name. He says, and other than that, you just keep your ears open and your mouth shut. And that's the biggest lesson I can tell anybody young in this business to do. Mouth shut, ears open. And it just and it just shows that respect goes a long way, because you're gonna get nowhere if you don't respect the business itself and oh, the people within the business either. Exactly, Kyle. And you know what? The wrestling business is is strange with that because the minute I mean I, I get the whole respect thing, and I, but one young guy that doesn't know maybe so much, and sometimes you need to learn. You could be out like that at a drop of a hat if you did the, if you didn't shake hands right if you didn't do this right if you if you sat in the wrong chair you could be out as fast mm -hmm. as you can and sometimes you look back and I go you know I get the respect thing but it's not fair if you don't know you know and somebody like Charlie I had to teach me this is what you do and I, I lucky for me I had someone to tell me I mean there mm -hmm. could have been a lot of guys with a lot of talent that just were like you're out of here kid we don't want nothing to do with you because you you messed up one time and it's a shame because. 
you know, not very many people get a second chance. And I'm lucky if you guys ever want to hear that story where I messed up when I was in Memphis and the Samoan SWAT team kicked the living hell out of me live on ESPN for the AWA. So if you guys want to get to that later, we can do that. that but just we, remember, we will you come got back your to podcast, that. Go get, go get a beer because it's a long story and I can talk. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. We will come back to that. Um, obviously, you've, you mentioned earlier, well, you know, before we started recording, that you, know, you don't really keep up with the product itself as much anymore. But, I mean, surely you must have heard things like the Performance Center and Wrestling Academies that seem to spring up almost overnight. What was it like training in the 1980s as compared to today's more modern take with things like the performance centers? You know, Paul, I'm really lucky to fall into the Monster Factory because they were very professional, okay? Um, there was no hazing, okay, at all. And um, that I've heard total horror stories from even guys like even like 10 years before me. They come in there guy would get stretched and they'd stretch him and he'd beat him up and beat him up and send him out the door. And if he came back the next day, they beat him up and beat him up again. I mean, to me, I don't see that's how it's teaching anybody. I think the, the, the minute I walked into the door, Charlie Fulton and Larry Sharp showed me nothing but respect. There was no ass beatings. There was no stretching. Every once in a while, Larry would say, get in here. Let me show you what a short arm scissors is and, th and throw it on and go like, wow, that really hurts. You know, when it's, when it's really applied, right. But it was never anything like let's, let's beat the hell out of him. Because tr truthfully, I said, I told you when, when I got involved, when I was 19, I was, you know, 195 pounds soaking wet five, nine, and I couldn't fight. I got into it because I, I liked the entertainment angle. I was a little athletic, you know. I, I love the British Bulldogs because a guy like David Boyce, um, not David Boyce, but Donna, my kid, was smaller. Now, granted, he was a lot bigger than I was then. But a guy my size, I go, if he can make it, that's what, you know, I want. But we, I didn't ever have to – I was never tested. And I've heard guys that get tested. And, and some of the old-timers, and maybe that's the way it was, but even some of the – um, even some of the other facilities they you know, they, they got a kick out of stretching guys. And to me, I, I just don't find it professional. It really, you got a guy I that now, listen, I if agree. you come in and you got a big mouth and I walk in there and I go, I'm going to beat everybody up here. Cause I'm the biggest wrestler ever. Then that guy needs to get stretched. Okay. Yeah. But you know, if you're respectful and you come in and you just want to try to be part of the business, I don't see anything, you know, I don't find it necessary to, to hurt somebody, <laughs> just some young kid walking off the street. Yeah, I mean, you, t you can take as big of a beating as you want, but at the end of the day, it's not going to improve your wrestling ability, is it? Like, it may improve certain aspects, and that you could argue that that could help with certain things, but it's never going to be beneficial with the amount of pain you actually take. No, no, Josh, because all it is is just to, for basically shits and giggles for the older guys. Let's beat this kid up a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. just because you can. And to me, okay, this business is supposed to be a work, right? So when you hear these guys beating, like if I was going to give you my body and you beat me up and I don't fight back. That is the key, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, when you get, when you step foot through the ropes, you're trusting your opponent to look after you. And oh, exactly. if you're and, and walking, if knew, the first thing they're doing is kicking seven levels of shit out of you. That's right. not actually doing anything to help anyone, really. No. Um, and if I said, knew... And if I knew it was a real fight, now, like I said, I'm not no tough guy. I'm going to tell you right now, but I'll handle myself. I'm not going to sit back and let somebody beat the hell out of me. If I know this is a real fight, I'm going to come back and I'm going to try at least to defend myself. But you think, you know, and, and you get in there and you're supposed to just take your beating and like it. And I just never, 
never really thought much of yeah. it. It's funny. When I was in college, I went to West Virginia with Wesleyan for a year. So and that was the one time I got to see one territory. So in West Virginia, the UWF was on. Actually, I think it just turned from Mid-South. That actually was my absolute favorite wrestling promotion ever. I don't know if you ever guys ever catch any of that Mid-South or UWF. We, we caught a little bit of it, yeah. Not oh, man, it was so but... good. But they had, like, during a commercial break, it was funny, it came on about 1 o'clock in the morning in West Virginia. So I was up late, supposed to be, you know, studying and stuff, but I was watching <laughs> wrestling and working out. And they had a training school then, and it was right at the time, like, with Sting and Rick Steiner and oh, those right, guys okay. there. Yeah. So I actually sent him a little bit of a, not really a resume, just kind of a letter saying, hey, I'm interested in the world of wrestling right now. I'm in college, but, you know, I'd like to come out. And I actually got a letter back from them saying, we'd like you to come out for a tryout. So it was in Texas, I believe. And uh, they asked me to come, but I'm like, I lived in New Jersey. The Monster Factory was literally two minutes from my house. There was an old airplane hangar in, a, in some little um, uh, airport. So I said, well, why go all the way out to Texas when this is right around the corner? But who knows what would have happened? Let's say, let's say I did go out to Mid-South. And I walked in the ring, and those guys were different. And they beat my ass. I walked in there, and I told you, I'm not looking. I'm, I told you, I'm not a big tough guy. They beat my ass. They might have sent me home with my tail between my legs. And I said, that's it. I'm done with wrestling. I'm never going to do it again. And I'm just wondering how many guys that may have had talent that got scared off because they got beat up so bad and just said, you know what, forget it. I, I'm done with this. I, I, I don't want any part of that. that that's, I'd wager that's it's a pretty thing. big number, to be fair. Sure. Yeah. So I don't know how my career would have turned out different. Who knows? Maybe I would have been better out there, but I, I was real comfortable with where I was at with the Monster Factory. And I, I think I made the right choice. From, uh, from us doing our research and stuff, you mainly competed in the Northeastern territories, such as ECW. But what I want to know is, because I'm a big Paul Heyman guy myself, what was it like working with Paul Heyman? Uh, it was a mad genius. Are you ready to throw us off the air yet? Uh, it was. I, <laughs> That's first the time best I, way you can put it. Yeah. <laughs> first time I ran into him, I was working for the ICW. That was uh, the Savoldi territory. So we worked through the Northeast, which was from Maine to New Jersey, which is the exact same area that the WWF ran. That was kind of like that territory. We were in their backyard, but I guess. Vince was never threatened by us, so he let us coexist. You know, we never were in the big buildings. Like, if we were in Massachusetts, we were working in uh, Augusta instead of Boston or, you know, other smaller towns. So we weren't in their big buildings, you know, where, um, you know, he was ever threatened by that. So yeah. we could, we people existed. Plus, Mario, I think Vince had a good um, relationship with Angelo Savoldi. It was like, you know, the, the, the founding father there and Mario actually was Mario and Tommy both refereed. So there was always decent ties. So I guess there was never any, any problem about us being in their backyard, but getting back to Paul Heyman. So anyway, so I was working with ICW around 1990. I was still pretty green. Um, this was after I got back from Memphis, uh, but I, I was getting better and I was getting a little bit into it. And Paul came in to uh, book the territory. And I remember him from, you know, watching him with AWA, the whole Paulie Dangerously character. And yeah. I was like, oh, cool. And he had a ton of ideas. And and it just was like the ICW TV at that time was very stale. Uh, nothing really made much sense. It just seemed like match, 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 promo, promo. But nothing ever fit. Like there wasn't many. Nothing of any real substance. 
Yeah, there was no real angles. And listen, everyone knows without angles and storylines, wrestling's not that much fun. You know, you can only watch so many matches, whether they're five-star matches or duds, you you get bored by it. Why do I care about a great match if there's nothing involved with the guys, you know, if there's no kind of angle? So Paulie turned that right around. Now, I was getting a small push at the time as being like their light heavyweight guy. And when when Paul came in, him and Tony Rumble, the Boston bad boy, he kind of like was a co-booker and this guy was great. I mean, more about him later. This guy was, I mean, I loved him to death. He was so good, uh, good in the ring, good behind the cameras, everything. So when Paul came in, he started, you know, making some changes. And I remember Tony going up to him at one time and saying, hey, what are we going to do with Ray? And Paul said, yeah, we're not, we're not going to be pushing him right now. So I knew, Tony said to me, yeah, Paul's not really up with getting you like a big push at this time. He's kind of worried about these other characters. So in one match, we had these guys called the Undertakers. Now that was before the real Undertaker was doing the gimmick. In fact, they owned that gimmick. They had to sell that to Vince McMahon because it was actually a copyright. They got it copyrighted. So they went to Vince McMahon when the, you know, when Mark Calloway started doing the Undertaker said, Hey, this is our gimmick. You're going to have to have to change it. So anyway, long story short, Vince convinced them to say, come on, come on in. I'll put you on the shows and, and we'll call it even. I was like, no, man, get money for this one. You got to get money. This is this is so he's going to pay you tons of money. But they came in and they were I don't think they ever made TV. They worked some house shows for six months and then they were gone after the, they got the control of the name. But anyway, so I was working against the Undertakers. And I used to do this front turnbuckle bump that Bret Hart does more famously, you know, where you get shot into the turnbuckle. Actually, so like with Bret Hart was shooting someone into the turnbuckle, did the reverse and ran face first into it. Now yeah. when Bret does it, and again, I copied off him. This is where I got it from. When Bret would do it, you know, he's taller than me, maybe it's 6'1". So when he did it, it was, it was face first, but it was more to the chest on the top turnbuckle. When I hit it, I was a little lower. So when I hit, I'd actually kind of get down and I'd hit it almost into my neck and snap Ooh. my neck back really hard like that. So I did that one day on TV and Paulywood went crazy. He loved it. From that point on, I was over in his book for one bump. He's like, we got to start pushing you. So he made me, if you watch the old ICW shows, they're almost the same thing he was doing in ECW. He had each character laid out just like there was a guy named Rochester Roadblock. He was so limited in the ring, but he was 6'10". He used to do choke slams. Paulie says, you can't do it, so just do a choke slam. So he was like 911. Tony Atlas was our champ then. Now, Tony was big in the WWF, you know, for a long time. Um, and he, he, they turned him heel, which was great because Tony was doing some of the best heel promos. If you guys go back and see any of this, Josh is not in his head. And so his heel promos were out of this world. They were so good. He probably could have got another job. But so Paul would just put him on and say, go ahead, Tony, talk for five minutes like he did with Shane Douglas in ECW. He had certain things that when you look like, you know, with me, he went, made me like a giant killer. So I was either, you would say either his Spike Dudley or his Mike, Mikey Whipwreck, because what he started doing was throwing all big monsters against me in the ring. The Undertakers, Tony Rumble, uh, there was a guy named T.T. Crunchkey, a big monster, whatever. But they would beat me to death and I just keep coming back. So that was kind of my thing. So Paulie had all these great ideas in his head. What happened in ICW, I don't know whether he fired, he got fired or if he quit. But that's when it ended, and that's when he went to Eastern Championship Wrestling, which he turned extreme after that, which yeah. I ended up following him up there at that time because I, I was still big in his book. He really – one bump got me over with him, and that was it. It was amazing, that one front turnbuckle bump. So, but, and if you guys, like I said, for all you people who don't know Ray Odyssey matches, 
look for it because it's almost it's almost a staple in all my matches. Watch me go take it. There's one in the ECW arena I took with Dean Malenko. It was so good. There was actually five minutes of match after that. Paulie, again, the genius that he was, looked at that bump. It was so good. He just said, I don't even care about the next five minutes. He edited it. And you ne- from that bump, you saw Dean Malenko put me in the um, the Texas Cloverleaf, and they went to the finish, and it was over. Because, okay. And I even said to Paul, I go, what happened to my comeback? What happened to all this? He goes, Ray, after that bump, there was no reason to see any of it. We go right to the finish, and that's it. Keeps you strong. Keeps <laughs> him strong. And so Paul Lee knew he was such a genius with his ideas, but also a genius of editing. Because you guys don't know how much stuff ended up on the ECW cutting room floor that was just lousy. And, but he knew he knew what he was doing, and he was a genius. He really was. Now, financially, no. As I, I'm sure you guys all heard the stories, <laughs> what happened with ECW? He, yeah. he went down the tubes because he couldn't handle it financially. But but as for booking and for creativity, uh, nobody could beat him. He was the best. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, most people will say that Paul Heyman is probably one of the best, if not the best, creative mind in the business. So. Yeah. And he's probably one of the main reasons why the business is like it is now. Because I was, I would agree with that. Yeah, he could take someone and say like they're terrible at promos, but he had a way of drawing the best out of what he had at the time and make accentuate the positives and hide the negatives. Yeah, and make you believe what he says. Like, I mean, the biggest example of that is the Public Enemy. I mean, they yeah. were, they were, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Ray might differ in his opinion, but they were terrible wrestlers. Johnny Grunge was my running, was my running mate. I'll tell you what, <laughs> I loved it. We got in a lot of trouble then and he was great. And Ted <laughs> Petty, who was Rocco Rock, actually was very good. He worked as a cheetah kid in the independence okay. for a long time. And he actually, uh, in the ICW, he was one of the first like kind of flying wrestlers in the United States, it was working the Indies. And I love Ted Petty because he was another guy instrumental in my career. When I started off and I was in just working with the Indies, he took a liking to me too right away. He's like, Ray, let me talk to, give me your promo picture, your phone number. I'm going to start handing it out around. Because, and, and you know what, let's put it this way. He was a baby face too. So yeah. another baby face coming into the locker room, for him to do that for me, that that's huge because most guys see it as competition and they don't want anything to do with you. But Ted Petty, what got me booked more in any of the independents before I hit like Memphis and everything like that myself. He was very instrumental in getting me booked all over. So uh, I, I have to disagree with you on this, guys, because <laughs> I love those guys. Um, but I think actually the worst or the best case, what you're saying, is Sandman. Yeah. Sandman was actually, real. yes, yes. He was, now he had a great entrance and a lot of charisma, but man, he was, he was tough to work with in the ring. And I don't I mean, want to say anything gay with him because I like the guy. I said I do, and I really like him. He's a lot of fun to go out with yeah. and all that. But he he swinged that He was not a wrestler. He was oh, not a good man. wrestler. No, but again, Paulie cut it down to, you know, his his entrance was longer than his matches, you know, but that's what people <laughs> wanted to hear. And, and he was I bleeding by the time the match even started. Let's not forget that. 
<laughs> I don't know how much editing you guys get over there with the network or whatever, but he came out to Metallica's, yeah. um, you know, and Sandman. Yeah. And it, it was so good. And when you hear it, like I see it on the network now, and they put some dub song behind it, it just doesn't have the same thing anymore. You have to have that Metallica and the people all singing with them. His yeah. entrance was spectacular. They were great. And some of the loudest pops I've ever heard, like when he's come back and, and the lights come on, that was another Paulie trick. Shut the lights off, and the people knew something big's coming when them lights yeah. come back on. You know, whether it's a return of Sabu or return of Sandman or Tommy Dreamer or or the girls popping up or whatever. There was always whenever the lights went out, I was like, oh boy, we're in for a treat now. And uh, uh, they said, but Sandman, they said, had such you know it, he was tough to work in a ring, but as I respect how over he was. Also, with the lights going out as as they did, everybody's using that trick now even in the in the modern day stuff that they're, they're using the turn the lights out bang surprise someone's someone's just appeared out of nowhere kind of thing you know just to get that pop from the crowd as it were i i don't know if paulie invented the lights out thing i'm sure they probably done it before but he seemed to master it he really he really got good at it the thing about paul is he always knew what the crowd would pop at because he was yes. such a genius and he still is, obviously, to this day. Like, he just, he's one of the only, you know, people that I know in the wrestling business that can see what a crowd likes and interpret that into his own little thing and really get the best out of it. And he got the best out of people that you never think you could have got the best out of. Oh, I agree, Josh. And one of the things was that ECW arena was testosterone filled. If you looked, that was 90% guys that wanted, you know, all that craziness. I mean, and... Um, the one thing I didn't like about there, it, when it worked a match, if I worked indies or if I worked in territories, there was a good little supply of different girls that were in the arena, but mostly in the ECW arena and ECW crowds, <laughs> there weren't very many girls there. It was all guys ready to see blood and guts and wrestling and, and angles. And they, they were, they were a fun crowd though. They've got a lot of really- You should have, uh, you should have gone in, in your Madonna costume, really got them driving mad. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, I don't go that way. <laughs> <laughs> that should have been your entrance for any main thing that you do. Just come out in a Madonna costume. Lights go Life down. The spotlight comes down. <laughs> well, hey, listen, if Paulie thought it would draw money, uh, I, I, that's why I didn't say anything. Because if he said it went way, that's a good idea. He would have used it. You know, that's yeah. what it is. It was all about drawing wouldn't. money. Oh, yeah. Don't mention it. It didn't happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, just just while we were talking that, I just had a little look on the network, and quite a few of your matches are there. We've got Sandman, Jimmy Snooker that you wrestled, Dean Malenko and the for the TV title, the Samoan SWAT team, which I think you mentioned earlier, Tommy That's Dreamer, there. Um, Eric Anderson, Taz. I mean, you've wrestled some some pretty big names. I I really enjoy well Taz and I. Um, we feuded all in the ICW at uh, 91 after uh, Paulie left. Tony Rumble came to me. He says, I got a guy from New York. Actually, him and Dreamer both came at the same time. He says, I got a guy I want you to see. You're, you're going to work with him all the time because yeah, I had the light heavyweight belt then. And yeah. I watched him and he still was doing that like Tasmanian kind of the Tasmaniac character where he was yeah. had the face paint and that. And he came in. 
and he destroyed somebody. And I go, you want me to work with that? I say, he, <laughs> like, he was throwing suplexes I ever seen before because what Taz, now me and Taz got to be really, really good friends after that, where we traveled together and all that. Taz told me a lot of those, those suplexes mm -hmm. that he made up there were, he was a big judo guy. So there were judo throws that he kind yeah. of made, like, because he just told the one that, them. that mm -hmm. T-bone suplex I've never seen before. He said, that's a variation of a judo throw. So Taz and I, when we started feuding, we had a huge feud in the ICW and it was, was really good. We were tearing buildings up. In fact, that's how I got my tryout with the WWF. They brought me and Taz in for a tryout in Rochester, New York in uh, 91. But anyway, me and Taz were all up and down. I knew even some indies, we worked some indies. Like I go up to Connecticut someplace or up in Maine, some little, little town. And I just say, all of a sudden, I see Taz in a locker room. I'm like, oh, I guess it's me and you again tonight. So we didn't even have to speak to each other in the locker room. It was like we were on such the good way. Like we were right on each other. We didn't have to really say anything. We find out what the finish was, and we just go. And we were really, they said, so when I got to ECW, you know, Taz, see, the problem with ECW, and it was nobody's fault, but I didn't fit there. I, I was trying to do my comedy gimmick. And those people hated me. They really did not want to see comedy. I was still doing the 80s baby face. Fire them up. Come on, you know, let's chant. And they'll go, Ray, go. They didn't want that. They wanted to see blood and guts and all that stuff and chair shots. And, and I just wasn't doing it. So yeah. anyway, that match with Taz, it's real short. If you look on the network, I think it's only about three or four minutes long. It's just boom, 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 boom. It was like, it was just like our old um, ICW days. So that's two a good minutes, one. 42, apparently. That's, that's so. it. Three minutes. It's going to be that. And I'm going to tell you what, it, you would think because I, I did the job that it's like a, just a straight squash. It's, it's, it's anywhere, nowhere near a straight squash. In fact, I would even think I probably get about 70% of the match, you know? So th the guys I was with there, even though at the time I wasn't getting pushed when I did the job, they all put me over. I made all the guys were all thing. Let's let's keep Ray strong because every, I was friends with everybody, which I mm. didn't really understand because a lot of times I threw a lot of potatoes in the ring. I just wasn't real careful sometimes. So I mean, not thing that I knocked you out, but sometimes I threw that punch. But oh, I'm a Ray. I never really got a receipt for some of the stuff I I threw, but I, I got along with everybody in the locker room. So it was almost like keep Ray strong. There was one match. It's a really good one. It's funny on the network. Uh, I haven't. I don't have the network anymore. But it said Ray Odyssey has a match. It's it's because I'm wrestling against Chris Benoit. Right. So it's it doesn't say Ray Odyssey versus Chris Benoit because of he's course, been erased yeah. from there. So it's just funny to see Ray Odyssey has a match. But there is it the one that says one. Ray Odyssey in singles action? Oh, maybe that's it. That's it. Must be it. So if anybody yeah. wants to tune in, that's me and Benoit. And really, the first couple minutes of that again, bang, 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 bang. Now they wanted Benoit to take over because he was just coming in. So. From about midpoint on, it was all Benoit. But, I mean, he was he was great. I mean, I don't want to gush over a guy that killed his wife and son because I think he's an absolute monster. But yeah. he was he was the best I've ever been in the ring with. But that that's all I'm ever going to say about him. So we've talked quite a lot about your singles action and you know how you came up to being a wrestler. Uh, let's shift to a tag team quickly. Um, you were in a tag team with Kid Inferno um, as the Beach Bullies. Um, great name, by the way. Uh, how did you come up with the gimmick? And also, how did like it come about? How did the tag team at Inferno kind of develop? It was a Dennis Carluzzo creation. Dennis Carluzzo was a guy that started kind of with Larry Sharp. Um, he, um, he started promoting his own shows, um, and then he got involved with the NWA. 
uh, where he was trying to re resurrect it from um, its old glory days. Because at the time after WCW was done, you uh, you know the NWA kind of disappeared. After yeah, I've done a I've done a big article series on the NWA, and yeah, it's safe to say the NWA was going through something of a rough patch, to put it mildly. Right, right. So what what Dennis Carluzzo was trying to do, I think him and there was a guy named Harold Brody that was in Florida. They were trying to get this back up, try to almost do like they did with the territories, try and get it. And the thing happened where it was actually on ECW TV. That's what turned Eastern Championship Wrestling into extreme because they were yeah. using Eastern Championship Wrestling as one of the territories that were all going to put together. In fact, Dennis Carluzzo was in the building that night. When Doug yes, Lincoln that's why I know the name. That's why I know the name because yeah. he was there for the for the throwdown, wasn't he? Right, right. And you know what? He's backstage. And if you look, do you remember the ECW used to have that guy to put signs up? He was a sign guy. In sign the front guy, row. yeah, absolutely. Right? So whenever I was wrestling in some, they actually did put me over a little bit. When Paulie brought me in, he really liked me, so he put me over in some squashes. And one of the sign guys knew that I was a Carluzzo guy, so his thing was never anything bad about me. Just always put up, Carluzzo sucks. And like whenever <laughs> I wrestled, because they knew I always worked for him or whatever. But anyway, so to, getting back to your question, he just decided uh, Inferno Kid was up and coming, nice kid, nice guy. And he goes, Brad, I want to use you guys as a tag team. We're going to call you the Beach Boys. It was all him. I go, well, he's not really a beach guy. And Dennis goes, that's all right. We're just going to put you together. And then we just – so the Inferno Kid had to almost adopt my gimmick, but he did, he did his own thing. We'd still come out to surf in USA. I still do my goofy surfing thing. I do all that stuff. But we did nothing like together, like as beach. He didn't do any beach gimmick whatsoever, and he was good. And I think he actually got um like a developmental deal with WWE at the or WWF. I'm not sure at the time, but he was he was really good. And uh, that so that's it. It really wasn't anybody's idea. It was just Dennis throwing throwing stuff against the wall and hoping it sticks. You if know, you throw enough shit, some of it will stick. Yeah, and that's I guess that's <laughs> so. what he was looking for. But but Dan, his name's Danny Danny Giamundo, I think. Great partner, great guy. I mean, did everything. I loved working as a tag team because he he was really good. So I could I could take some rests out there. You know, it's just it was easier. I actually don't think I was as good a tag team wrestler. Um, but it was an easier night off when I worked with somebody like that because he was so good and I could I could hang out on the apron just begging for the hot <laughs> tag, begging for the hot tag. You know, and in fact I loved it. Like when I'd hear the finish was, Danny's taking a heat ray. You're coming in, boom, 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 hot tag, finish, go home. I'm like, all right, night off, beautiful. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> you said obviously that you were, you know, you feel like you were better as a uh, singles competitor. But like, did you prefer one of the over the other, or did they like both kind of? Did you enjoy them both just as much? I, I preferred to be in the ring with my uh, just uh, singles mostly because I, that's just what I felt I was better at. Um, and especially, I, I think I kind of got into it at the wrong time because I think if I would have been 10 years down, we're now like the light heavyweights are really like you, you turn on the TV now. And I, I've noticed, I'm like, boy, you see a lot of guys like I would, I yeah, you don't small. get your, you don't get your big heavyweight guys as much. It's more about the more athletic people that can do, yeah, the, the, <laughs> the lucha style, as it were. Like, yeah, know. doing the flips and tricks and all sorts of stuff nowadays, yeah. like Rey Mysterio, for instance. It's more right. like a gymnastics course now, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's the story for another day. Well, it's funny because I was considered a high flyer, you know, in like the late 80s, early 90s. 
And basically all I did was I did like a top rope drop kick. I did a couple things off the top rope and I did a tope that I learned from watching an old Japanese tape. So they, <laughs> that was it, you know? So, but now you look at it, I'm like, I've never done a moonsault. I've never done any of those. I'd be scared to do a moonsault. I'll tell you the truth. I, I, I even did that in a pool and just about knocked myself out. Just jumping <laughs> in the water. So for me saying I missed my error because there's a lot of smaller guys. I would have had to learn that gymnastic stuff too, and maybe I wouldn't have been so good. So maybe maybe <laughs> better where I where I fell. <laughs> the first time I saw the moon salt, um, I was in Puerto Rico, and I came in just they flew me in, and all I did was just go in and do jobs. But that's how I kind of got my name going, and and they actually wanted to bring me back. Um, and that was right at the time when Bruiser Brody got murdered. The thing was, I got an offer at Memphis at the exact same time, so I took the Memphis one. But the first time I ever saw a moonsault, they put me in, a, uh, in the ring with a guy called Super Black Ninja, who ended up turning out to be the great Muda. Um, so oh, wow. he was just yeah. he just started doing this Super Black Ninja thing. And I remember seeing him on TV. It's the first time I've ever seen a moonsault. I'm like, oh, my God. And when they put me in the ring with him and said, you're going to work with him, he only spoke Japanese. So I'm going, I'm – 19 20 years old i don't know japanese how am i going to work with this guy and i'm scared to death of that thing he's going to hit me and i'm going to he's going to kill me with it i've never never seen that before so i get in there and the finish is coming he puts me down and he goes up the top and i'm just going here it comes here it comes dudes i'm telling you it if a feather would have landed on me, it would have been harder. The guy was so good. I didn't even feel a thing. He was so good in the ring. But that's the first time I ever saw it. And I remember looking up going, oh, my God, he's doing a flip on me. Now now everybody does it, you know. Yeah, but it was so that's just a standard cool. move now. Yeah, and That goes for a lot of moves, though, because let's not forget, Jake, Jake the Snake invented the DDT, and it was supposed to be a finisher. And now it's just a common move. Not only a finisher, one of the best killer finishes ever you know i mean what's a better finish than running someone's head into the mat right so many moves that i like it's it's amazing how much the business has progressed and and some things it's bad and a lot of old timers will say it you know well where can you go from here you know (laughs) they gotta be triple flips off the top rope that guys kick out on you know it just so if you talk to any old timers they like to have it go back to the days where i could hold a headlock for 10 minutes but let's face it guys that's not gonna work anymore it just won't you can't introduce you can't go from where we're at now if you had a a kid that was eight years old and never ever watched a product before and then you you told him okay this is it and it went to that i think it would work but you can't go from all these crazy flips and all that back to the old standard headlock and arm drag and get it again and it just it doesn't work you know it is a a struggle i mean uh nwa is obviously back now with with billy corgan in charge and obviously it's no longer the big uh countrywide governing body that it was it's now its own regular promotion and they're trying to use that sort of 60s and 70s style of wrestling it works to an extent but i think as you say in a, in a modern era when you've got access to you know you've got aew you've got the young bucks throwing super kicks out like they're candy you've got people like mysterio and the cruiserweight division in wwe and to try and portray that old era I mean, whilst it's commendable, and personally, I enjoy the product very much, but it's not going to appeal to the masses, as you say. Yeah, because these days, like, you need to find some way to hold people's attention when it comes to when it comes to the product. You want them to stay glued to their TV screen, and unfortunately, the 
old-fashioned way of doing things isn't going to do that anymore. It's because my bloody age group are thick and they don't know what decent wrestling is. That's what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) You won quite a lot of championships in your career. Um, I I mean, I noticed that you were the NWA United States Tag Team Champion with Inferno Kid. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that was fun because actually we won that in my hometown. Anyway, we, we did that and it was another thing where it was Inferno, take the heat, right? You come in, hit him with the drop kick or whatever, off the top and, and take the belts. And uh, and it was fun because, again, this was like around 94, 95, somewhere around there. I actually have some notes because I did some homework. It's in there somewhere. But that was like kind of like my – for between like 92 and 96, that was like my my – that was – the time when I was really over and, and doing the most things. So when we did that, the NWA was trying to, again, to make that comeback. So they, they put that was the old United States tag belts. And I think the rock and rolls or the midnights used to have. So it was, it was fun to see again. I'm still a mark for stuff like that. You get a yeah. belt like that. Like, wow, this was the midnights held this belt. This was, you know, it, it's not the, it's not the old NWA, but there it's still the old belt, you know? So yeah. it's still kind of cool. But it was it was cool just because they said and, and we had it actually had a bunch of Japanese uh, reporters there uh, photographers that they did in their magazines and they're like okay here it is the NWA is coming back you know and here's the new tag champs you know the new U.S. tag teams the Beach Boys why is Inferno not in a wetsuit but I don't know they're just the Beach Boys <laughs> I guess he was the bully part <laughs> why why is Inferno not in a wetsuit and why why is the other guy wearing a a, a white dress and singing Madonna songs. Going back to, uh, obviously, as I say, you won quite a few championships. Aside from the NWA US tag titles, is there any other sort of title that you won that meant more to you looking back now? Or were you just, you know, was it just a case of, you know, any time you hold a belt is a, is a magical time? Yeah, I mean, because what the company is doing is, is telling you that you're our guy. You know, whether it be a big company, a small company, independent, it, it's still a respect thing. So, like I said, a lot of those belts that I think you see, a lot of them are, are smaller independent things, Got you know, places that only ran, you know, three times a month or whatever. But still, for them to put it on you is, is a respect thing. So, you know that they, they think very highly of you. Um, I guess the biggest one was the, um, the ICW belt, the IWCC light heavyweight belt, because yeah. they had it on me forever. It was like a time where I think I looked it up on Wikipedia. They don't even know when I got the belt. They, they, like, <laughs> I it did notice been, that, actually. <laughs> it could be three years. It could have been five years or something like that. It seemed like I had it forever, and I lost it to Taz, which actually was the blow-off of our feud, which worked so perfect, and that match was really, really good. Like After all our old feud, um, we went through that, and the night that Taz beat me for the belt, that's a really good one. So if you ever go back and see that and let your podcasters know that was a fun one. And Taz, I got beat because Rumble came in and hit me over the head with the Boston Red Sox batting helmet. And I'm going to tell you what, <laughs> Rumble never Rumble never eased up on that thing. You got hit with it. That was hard plastic. That hurt. I'm like, Tony. Yeah, I can only imagine. Again. Oh, I didn't hit you that hard. Eh, yeah, <laughs> you did. But, but that was a good one. That's how I ended up lo- losing the belt. And then that was the blow off of the feud there. And then Taz shortly went to ECW after that. I think I would, because Robbie Ellis was the guy in ICW. That was their light heavyweight champ. And the funny thing was, when I was working for them, I was around 21, 22. And Robbie Ellis was old then. I mean, he was really old, like, like, like 50-ish. And I heard recently, like within the last five years, he was still wrestling. I'm going, he 
has to be in it. He got to be about 80 years old. And Robbie was, let's just say, Robbie wasn't great in the ring, but I have to respect anybody that's, that stayed in the ring that long. He was actually an art dealer. And um, he, he was, had a very good um, a, a collector's business or whatever. So, in fact, if you look, I remember Robbie Ellis made Sports Illustrated because he was – he said he he did he dealt in art and he was a wrestler on the side and Sports Illustrated actually did a you know an article on him which is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. For a guy that really was, let's face it, he wasn't he wasn't very good in the ring. He just he just wasn't. <laughs> and for me being small, Robbie actually was smaller than me, and he looked old. I'm going, that was our light episode. So they put it on me at one time, and then like I said, I held it for it seemed like years before they finally uh, put it on Taz. Yeah, to be fair, even like even if you weren't a great wrestler, to go that long and take that much beating is impressive. Like you could, you don't have to be a great wrestler, but even just doing that is dedication, isn't it? Let's be honest. Absolutely. Again, it's the company, you know, trusting you and saying you're our guy, you know, for being yeah. that long. Now, again, uh, ICW was was not the best, you know, a, a lot of the times. In fact, I remember. I used to get the uh, those dirt sheets. I think it was uh, Dave Meltzer, um, the Wrestling Observer, was big back then, and it was always voted like worst TV show. And I'm like, yes, at least we're number one for something. <laughs> we got number one. But, That's one way of putting it. Take, take the positives where you can. Listen, I'll be, I like being number one. I'm going to tell you a quick story. My dentist tells me he goes, Ray, you're one of the worst guys I've ever seen. You really grind. I grind my teeth at night. He fits me for this thing that I'm supposed to be wearing at night. Whatever. He goes, you're definitely number one. And I go, yes. And he goes, you're not supposed to cheer on that. I go, listen, I'm number one. I thought I'd take it. That's brilliant. I love it. It's cool. I feel like I'm going to take life lessons away from this podcast. Be number one in something. Always be number one in something. Ray Odyssey role. Yeah, you're you're positive. Something else. Different way to look at life. I'm just going to, I'm just, the Ray Odyssey rule. That's brilliant. And, uh, I'm just going to stare at the camera for a second because I know who's going to edit this podcast. Ads, I expect a meme about this. Life Lessons with Ray Odyssey. You mentioned before that you uh, have wrestled Taz on multiple occasions, but you also wrestled him within the WWF. Is it in a dark match in the early 90s? Um, and, but what was your experience working with the WWF and how did the opportunity come about? Okay, that's a good one. Um, Taz and I, like I said, we were tearing it up all over the East Coast. And I said, that's Vince's backyard. So yeah. Tony Rumble called me one day, and that was another thing. Tony Rumble and I used to talk and talk hours on the phone. That was back when you used to have a phone bill, too. And I used to have phone bills from Boston, $10, $11, $13.50. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm spending all my money because I'm talking to Rumble all the time. But he called me the one day and said, Ray, I got some good news for you. He says, you're, you're going to get a tryout for the WWF. You and Taz are going up there. And I was shocked because it seemed like it came out of nowhere. I said, really? I said, how did this come? Because I didn't even say it. It was like a lot of guys – when they want to go to WWF or WWE, they're the ones that, you know, have to initiate it. You know, it was just like, you know, you're going there, it's set up, you guys are ready to go. So I live in Jersey, Taz lives up in Brooklyn, New York. So I drove up, picked him up, and we drove out to Rochester, which was a long drive, I think like five, five, six hours out there. It's still in New York, but it's like at the top of the state, all the way to the west side. So 
we got there and we're talking the whole time. And again, we worked with stuff. We worked with each other so many times. It wasn't even much to even go over because we just knew each other so good. We knew we were going to have a good match. So we got there and, uh, you know, we knew a lot of the, like the job guys. Okay. Cause there were a lot of the guys that worked on the East coast promotions. It was like at the time, Gilbert was wrestling as Dwayne Gill as one of the job guys there. There were certain guys that we knew. And so I knew there were some people there. Now, again, it was 91. So, I was still only four years in the, the business at that point. Now I went to Memphis, so I did know some people there and Puerto Rico. So I had some little bit of resume because of course you walk into that dressing room. I wanted to go dress with the job boys because I knew them all. They go, no, you're not dressing there. Get in this room. So I walked in and of course we shook hands with everybody. I knew Pat Tanaka because he was in Memphis and I knew downtown Bruno was doing a gimmick called um, Harvey Whippleman then. He was uh, Sid Vicious's manager. So I knew him through Memphis. So at least there was a couple faces I did know. And then and that, that goes a long way for the boys, too. It's like, oh, they're telling stories about being in Memphis. So I was like, okay, you know. But I sat down next to Hercules, and uh, there was an empty chair next to him. And uh, so I sat down. I was getting dressed. And uh, one of the nasty boys, uh, Brian Nobbs, comes over, and he was testing me. He looked at me. He goes, uh, hey, brother, you're sitting in my chair. And I said, well, I said, nobody was here. You know, I'm sorry, but nobody was here. He goes, well, you're in my chair. You better get up. Now, now all of a sudden the boys are starting to look and I'm going, all right, this is tough. Now, now do you look like a wimp and get up and sleep, slink away because there's a fine line of respect. And then there's a fine line of, well, you did, that kid didn't even stand up for himself. So I said, well, you know, there's a chair right there. And he goes, well, I'm sitting down. So he dropped, he gets, stands up and he drops his drawers right down. He goes to sit. And I jump out of the way. I said, listen, if you want the chair that bad, no problem. And I got a giggle from everybody. But I was like, he really embarrassed me. But I got over a little bit because I joked around. So I looked and Hercules was, it was Hercules and um, the warlord was standing right next to me. Warlord was monstrous. Oh my God. The arms on this guy. I'd never seen arms or a neck on a guy like this. But anyway, Hercules just looked at me. He goes, don't worry about that, brother. Everybody thinks he's an asshole anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> So that was good. I passed that test. I'm okay with the boys. So, you know, but you're sitting in that locker room with all the stars. And so Taz and I you know, talk a little bit. So we spill out to like into the kind of the area out, like away from the dressing room and talking to some of the boys. And so we're talking to Tony Gurria, um, Renee Goulet, I think was an agent then. And Pat Patterson came over to us and we said, thank you, you know, for the opportunity. And they said, you know, we heard that you guys worked with each other all the time. I go, yeah. And they said to me, go, you the baby face? I said, yeah. And I think it was Patterson says, then you're, you're going over. I said, okay. So I'm testing any problem with that. You know, we put each other over all over the place. So um, we went out there and we just, we tore it up. I mean, they gave us, it was actually a tape change. Um, so it's a, it literally was a dark match, but it was between a tape change now. So from what I'm understanding, if there's a tape change, I don't know if there's any footage because they, they no, because the it would have been back in the day when it was actual tapes being changed over in the cameras. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, now Taz told me later on that he actually does have footage of it. Now I don't know if that's maybe somebody had like a fan cam or whatever, because he said it was kind of far back. He says, but he has the match and listen, and that's another thing. If you guys, anybody can get their hands on that. Cause I asked Taz years ago for it. He goes, yeah, I got it, Ray. I'll make you a copy. And then we kind of fallen out and Taz had his career. 
And I'm sure that's not like on his big list. And Taz had a great career. You know, it, it's my highlight. It might not be his. He's not sitting at home going, oh, I've got to do that DVD for Ray. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So, you know, but it is, it is his tryout match. But again, we tore it up. Now they gave us, I think they gave us eight minutes. Okay. So we get in there. Within the first two minutes, the referee goes, wrap it up, guys, go home. And we're like, oh, man, two minutes. We, we haven't barely even been in here. Well, I said to Taz, what do you want to do? He goes, F him, right? Let's keep going. So we just kept going, <laughs> and we tore it up. And the ref a couple times said, guys, take it home. But the, all of a sudden, the crowd started getting into it. Now, again, yeah. this was a WWF crowd. Now, we got a couple people because, again, that was still our area. You know, we got in, and we're like, Yo, Ray, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, surfer? And I'm like, uh, I'm trying. You know, like the, the, the audience is like, oh, okay. So there was some people that did know us, but it was mostly a, a WWF crowd that didn't know much about us. And it got, we started getting pops on everything we were doing. So I go over and and the match is done. And, and I, I did the best I could have, and he did the best. So we were real happy about it. And, uh, Oh, before I, one of the most p- best part about the story, I forgot to tell you. So when we're in the dressing room before the match, Vince McMahon is walking through the hallway. And I said, well, in my mind, Vince McMahon must have seen us working somewhere because that's why he brought us in. He wants to see the match. So I walked up to him, you know, I guess I was a little naive. And I went to shake. I just shook his hand and I said, um, thank you very much for this opportunity. You're going to get the best I have. I'm going to, you know, work my ass off for you. Uh, to show you that I belong here and, you know, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to show you that, yeah, you made the right decision of bringing me in. Well, he looked at me like he had absolutely zero clue who I was. <laughs> he shook my hand. He goes, okay, I'm sure you will. And he walked away. I'm like, wow, that was just, that was such a, like an ego buster. I really think that Vince McMahon brought me and Taz in to see us because we didn't call him, but obviously he had no clue who we were. And I was like, oh. <laughs> but anyway, so after the match was done, we got back and Dwayne Gill was the first guy that met us, you know, it was Gilbert. And he goes, he's got a big smile on his face. He goes, brother, they love you. And he says, they loved you guys. I go, who? He goes, the boys. I go, well, who? He goes, all the boys. Everybody was huddled around the, um, the monitor in the back. He goes, you guys got jobs. You guys got jobs here. And Rogue Warrior Animal actually walked up to us when we were standing there. He goes, that's how you do it, guys. He goes, some along the lines of, that was good. That's how you do it out there. And it was just like so cool. Road Warrior Animal coming over and a couple of the other guys too. Um, I said, uh, uh, Hercules kind of gave me, you know, gave me the look and, you know, a little heads up, but, you know, we're like, nice job. He said the boys were all popping for all the stuff because we're hitting all our big moves and it was just going boom, boom, boom. And they were like, you got a job here. Now, me, I said, well, I got a job. I'm going to wait for the phone to ring. Well, that's a mistake. Okay. Uh, Taz stayed on them. Taz continued to call them. Taz would show up at places. You know, he, he'd have his gear. And even if he didn't work, he stayed there. In my head was, I did great. I'm just waiting for the phone call. Well, the mm. phone call never came. So uh, is that a regret? Yeah, maybe I probably should have called Patterson or called um, uh, Gurria or Goulet, the guys that talked to me afterwards. But I personally, I didn't know their numbers. I didn't know how to get in touch with them. But probably should have gone in there and kept my face alive because – I was great that night, and then the next night, probably forgot. Regardless of, I mean, the fact is, you still had a match in the WWF. That's 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 oh, something yeah. that a lot Even of people that. would kill for the opportunity for. And so, and, and, and I am undefeated. I'm undefeated. undefeated. <laughs> yeah. 
There I'm one go. of the few guys that can say I'm undefeated <laughs> in the WWF, and that and a dollar will get you a cup of coffee tomorrow. We have in our midst <laughs> a undefeated WWF superstar, guys. That's we are right. we are in the right presence here, of royalty. On real, on real wrestling, you got it. Undefeated <laughs> you, you, you might as well hand over your crown now, Paul. I was going to say, shall I just? Uh, <laughs> shall, hey, shall even I'll step up this one. I'll step up. I'll, I'll just I'll just give you this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, God. So, um, you were ranked number 170 in the PWI 500 1992. I mean, we, we've established you love number one, but at least there's a one in the number, right? We, we can say that. Yeah. Uh, given the reputation of the PWI, um, you know, in the eyes of the fan, that's some recognition. Like, what is it like for you to know that you were a good number in that 500? I told you, Josh, that was, um, that was my wheelhouse. 92 to, like, 96 that was my area that I thought this is when I'm going to make it. That was kind of like the prime of my career. Um, and, and a couple of years, they were all real close to that, you know, like one seventies, even one eighties and everything. It was like the next four years, they were all right there. And if you look at those lists and again, I'm a mark, I'm a mark for myself. I was a mark for wrestling, everything. I'd open up that I would go to PWA, but I mean, they're not on newsstands anymore, but back then you go to the newsstands and pick it up. I would look through it. I'd look for my name in the right, ra- you know, the ratings because the ICW was there. So, you know, I was always in the top 10 somewhere there, but the big one was PWI 500. That was, that was the good one. So Listen, it, just to even be that that high, that was pretty cool for a guy that really was an indie ICW, you know, back then. That was even, well, ECW was around, but really, I didn't get pushed in ECW. I think I, I have a handful of wins there, and, and that's it. But I was doing mostly jobs. So for a guy that didn't have a lot of wins on TV, yeah, it was it was kind of high. So I am proud to look back on something like that and say, yeah, I got, I got some respect from somebody. Thanks, Bill. If you did it, Bill, after. <laughs> Thanks, bud. You may not have got many wins, but you're undefeated in the WWF. You can't complain. Yeah. Never take Absolutely. that away. They cannot take that away from you. No doubt. <laughs> well, that's one other thing. Maybe I, that's what I'm always worried that somewhere like, hey, man, if I ever got a chance to go back to the WWE, would you do it? I go, no, because if I do a job, I'm like everybody else then. You know, I got, at least I'll hang on to my undefeated streak. That is very true. Yeah. Know your worth. I'm so proud to see. I'm, you might hear me. You know, I'm uh, undefeated in the WWF. <laughs> and then, and then some some wise mouth kid will say it's WWE. You don't even know the letters. And they just walk away. <laughs> yeah, just, it was WWF. What you do when I did it? Yeah. What you do then is you choke slam that kid and walk away. Yeah. It's like, what do you know? What you should actually do is just get a shirt made up. You know, undefeated WWF superstar. Everywhere you go. That is what you need. Everywhere you go. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's one bad thing about that, though. And this is one of the main reasons that I don't do a lot of the um, conventions and signings, okay? Because I think if you guys, I don't know, it's a big picture around here, a a meme where Virgil from the WWF is sitting at a signing. Oh, we know it. (laughs) We know. We know it. I would rather no. be the guy that says, I'm going to give my pictures away. I'm not going to sell them. And I really was, a, you know, the only time I ever made like gimmick money was when I was in Memphis. And, you know, I would make like an extra 50 bucks a week or, or 100 bucks a week, which was nothing compared to like what Jarrett and um, Steiner and those guys were getting. But it was an extra 50 or 100 bucks, 75 bucks a week. You know, it sold pictures, but I didn't even have to do it. There was just something always that felt cheesy going out in the middle yeah. of intermission and like, and ask for money. I would just, I just sign my pictures and give them to people. But yeah, That's you never awesome. want to be that guy. You never want to be Virgil sitting by yourself. Yes, unfortunately we have, a, we have a Virgil, Virgil story. Virgil, <laughs> Virgil uh...
That'll be three hundred dollars, please. So, um, we we talked a little bit about the people you fought in your career, and you mentioned obviously there's been certain people that have been sort of the best that you've worked in the ring with. I mean, I I, I kind of feel like I know what you're going to say here, but who's your favourite opponent you faced in your career? It'd be Taz, because yeah. we're just we're we were just so good together. I mean, it really it just clicked. You know, I've had some guys that I have fun in the ring with. I had some guys that I was better friends out of the ring with. I told Johnny Grunge was my boy. That was my running guy. And Taz didn't, Taz wasn't one that went out after the shows were done. Taz usually went right back to the hotel room. In fact, as a rib, when Tony Rumble booked us together and on the chances that sometimes, you know, the ICW picked up a hotel room or when we went to um, Bahamas, they would end up sending us to the Bahamas every once in a while, which was great. It was like a paid vacation on a weekend. And uh, for a rib, Tony Rumble used to always put me and Taz together in the same room just because he knew that I'd come in at all hours of the night and Taz would be sleeping and get him so mad. And me and Vic Steamboat used to go and, and torment him. That was one of my other buddies, my running buddies, Vic Steamboat, when we were together in ICW. And I'd come bursting in the room at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and Taz would just be so mad. They'd just get so mad at us. But he was he was my favorite guy to ever be in a ring with. It just clicked. And listen, not that I didn't go through some bumps and bruises with him, especially when he was throwing a lot of those suplexes, because a lot of them, he would tell me like, hey, Ray, I'm going to put you, what was the one? He wanted to put me in a, in a reverse. I think he wanted to reverse like Cobra Clutch and suplex me, or it was kind of, yeah, it was almost like a cobra clutch into a suplex. And I go, yeah, I'm not God. doing that. Are you going to break my neck? <laughs> Who are you trying to kill? <laughs> and you know what? He actually, in that match when I was with ECW, um, he finishes with the Tazplex, which is actually just, he picks me up and throws me for a flip. And it actually wasn't too bad of a bump. I was actually pretty scared that I thought it was going to land on my head. But he's so strong. And, he, and that was another thing. He's so short that you would think, he's not ever going to get you over in time because you don't have that much room. It's not like you're coming from a guy six, nine and you have plenty of time to make the bump. You know, yeah. he was, but yeah, he flipped me over and actually it was an easy bump. Cause I kind of landed like pancaked on my belly. I'm like, Oh, that was pretty easy. But some it, of them shorter than the five, day, nine, isn't he? I would listen. I've seen a lot of his <laughs> podcasts and I've seen it. And people like to break his stones about being short in the ring too. And I've heard one, I heard him and Joey Styles going back and forth. And Joey Styles said, have you ever been taller than anybody in the ring? And he laughed. He thought of me and he goes, I was taller than Surfer Ray Odyssey. And they both laughed. So I was like, well, I, I think I was, I think I was taller than it. Well, plus it, he, he, when, when I was wearing boots, I actually had an actual, a heel made that was even bigger. It was a double heel just so it was, it would make me taller in the ring. But the problem was when I got into the surfer character, I started wearing one boot and one checkerboard van surfer sneaker. So I'd walk around almost like, like one like foot, one leg was yeah. bigger than the other. So whenever I like had to stand, I made sure I stand on that heel one mostly, but it was tough because at the time when you're running the ropes, it was easy like to kind of slightly sprain your ankle because you, you took a bad step on the shorter, on the shorter boot. Yeah. But um, yeah, so, but, but Taz says he was taller than me. I say no. Personally, I think you should go with tape measure. Yeah, I think we're going to need to. Uh, for all. Yeah. We're, I mean, to be fair, he can be taller. He's, he's not undefeated in the WWF. So, right. <laughs> but especially though, when he was wearing bare feet, oh, I towered over him. I was a good two inches taller then. I was a whole maybe five ten with that boots to his five eight or whatever he is with the uh, with the bare feet. 
but still, what a talent. I don't care how small he was. He was oh, like one of the size is nothing. It really he isn't. was one of the most legit small guys that like you would say, I don't care how small he is, he's legit tough. He could beat anybody. You know, when he I was wouldn't want to fight him in a dark alley because I no, I, yeah, I was Taz would say, knock he's anyone. Probably out. one of the most intimidating people ever for his, for his size. And he was I'm not I'm even like, taking into account his size, to be honest, Kyle. I mean, the guy was hench. Yeah, and you know what, Kyle? Too, it's not just that; it was his attitude. He was yeah. out of the ring. He lived his gimmick. If you didn't know it, like he liked it. I knew the other side of Taz. The joke inside that we rode together was me. It was always when when we were together in the ICW. I lived in Jersey, so I would drive to Brooklyn. I pick up Taz in my pickup truck, but my pickup truck was only one seat, so we couldn't fit three guys. So we drove to Yonkers and we picked Dreamer up. And Dreamer had the best vehicle at the time. He drove like a Bronco or something like that. So it was always Dreamer drove. Taz would be in the front, and I'd be sprawled out in the back, usually with a pool or beer, you know, because we would we would drive a lot of long trips back then. So it was a, I knew the fun side of Taz, but if you knew him from like when he got like into his real gimmick in the ACW. He would sit in that locker room like this and have a bunch of guys like surrounding him. I'm going, where's Taz? Oh, he's in like he's the godfather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He really lived his gimmick, you know. And then I heard I heard the whole thing about when Van Dam slapped him. And I wasn't around for that, but I heard, you know, Van Dam slapped him and they kind of like smartened the rest of the boys up in the locker room, like, maybe Taz isn't as tough as he said. But I didn't say that. I think Taz is tough as nails. Yeah. Well, that actually leads we're just, us very We're just going to cut that little bit out and just say, it's a, you know, when it when it goes out, it's going to be uh, Ray Odyssey said that Taz is weak. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Anything to help. <laughs> well, that actually leads us on very nicely to the next question we have for you. Because we know that all wrestlers have the craziest on-the-road stories because you travel around a lot and you're all over the place and you see people from different places. But what's the craziest story you have for us this that you had on this favorite question <laughs> that you had on the road? I, I can't, I can't guys. I, listen, I've, been trying, <laughs> I've been trying to keep this. Like, it's that bad. You can't tell us, you know, <laughs> and listen, if all three of if all four of us were sitting in a bar somewhere. Okay. I would open up and, and let the floodgates out. But a lot of these guys are still alive. And, and, and even ones that have died, you know, like my buddy, Grani Grunge, he was wild. There were some wild stories there or whatever, but sometimes, you know, involving different guys, I, I kind of a little uncomfortable saying it on, you know, on your podcast, but there were some fun things. Um, like the Sandman and I at one time really didn't get along. Um, when he, before he got an ECW, um, I came up with that surfer gimmick. That was mine. Okay. Sandman, I remember when he was he was wrestling. There was another guy actually in that same area. His name was Sunny Beach. And he was doing like um like a beach boy thing. He had shorts on. I was the original guy that decided to wear the wetsuit. Okay. Whether that was dumb or not, that was my thing. I wore the wetsuit. I brought the boogie board in the ring. Sandman saw me back then and changed because he just he just wear regular. I think he just had like a regular singlet or whatever when he was a salmon. I don't even know what the salmon was supposed to be, you know, whether he's beach, whether he was like Mr. Sandman, you know, like from the song. I, I don't know. But all of a sudden he started wearing the, you know, the wetsuit and carrying the, the surfboard. And anytime you get your, you know, I'm having a hard enough time getting booked as it is. And now there's a copycat of me. So I didn't like him and he knew I didn't like him. And when we were in locker rooms back before ECW, it was really like, 
you know, really tension between the two of us. So one day when I was in ECW, again, we didn't like each other, but Ted Petty said, listen, I'm going to put you two guys in a van. We're driving and we're not going, because my whole thing was after the show was done, let's go to the bar and him too. So he's like, we're not going to the bar until you guys hash this out. So he handed us a six pack and we went at each other in the back seat. of it was, it was, Teddy was driving. I think Johnny was up front. It was like a big, like kind of van. Cause I remember there was other seats. There was Jason Knight who was, um, Jason, the sexiest man. Um, there was uh, Angel. She was a valet at one time, like real, real early ECW stuff. And it was me and Sandman. And we went at each other. I said, you know what? I don't know. So you're a copycat. MFR and this. And he goes, I don't think you've got no town. I don't care what you say and blah, blah, blah. And we kept going at each other. And after a six pack of beer, but we end up getting out of the car. We both had our arms around each other. And we walked in the bar and we've been friends ever since. So, you know what? Don't don't ever uh, underestimate uh, sitting in and having a six pack and, re, you know, just kind of hashing out your problems with somebody. The, the power. Never yeah. underestimate a six pack. Exactly. <laughs> it might have even been Budweiser. Boy, I tried a Budweiser the other day and I couldn't even get through it. Oh, my God. It was awful. I mean, I don't know if you guys get that over there. I, I've gone yeah, definitely. Gotta yeah, be it's a kind color. of my favorite beer. <laughs> oh, I can't, I can't stand Budweiser. Oh, I'm, I'm a light beer guy now. Yeah, just, just strictly light beer. And I remember, I'm going to see if I can do it. I used to be able to recite the Budweiser saying on the can. It said, let me see if I can do it now. Now, listen, I, I, I guess I'm just going to have to take, I haven't had a Budweiser in my house in a while. Real wrestling exclusive coming right here. <laughs> it was, this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no other brand that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beechwood aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and a drinkability you will find at no other beer at any cost. I think that's pretty good. I think that's right. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's on, but I think I remember from drinking so much Budweiser back in the day that I knew the saying on the can. And listen, I'm not cheating. I'm telling you, these notes have nothing but wrestlers, uh, wrestlers' names and dates on it. So I don't I don't have the Budweiser credo. Uh, no, he's, he's got a can on top of the computer. He's just like, yeah, yeah. I'll just, I'll just pretend I'm not looking at that. If I did, it would say Miller Lite on it. <laughs> But yeah, road stories, you know what, anything involving the Iron Sheik, again, I'm not going to go into a lot of stuff, but he was funny. I don't, I got I don't think you need to. Here, here's a good one that's, that's okay. kind of kind of a little bit there. When yeah. I was working with the ICW, um, we had uh, Sky Lolo um, with, with the midgets were, I don't know, is that politically correct? We can't even say midgets uh, anymore, I don't think. But anyway, well, the midgets... We're not the most politically correct podcast, okay. to be honest. <laughs> well, the midgets, the funny thing with midgets are, they they get drunk and they like to take their clothes off. And you'd see naked midgets <laughs> running around all the time. Well, we were behind. I saw, I think it was the Savoldis were in front of us, Mario and Tommy, and I knew they had Sky Low Low with them. And he was always drinking, and you could never understand when he got drunk. He just could barely understand a word he said. But he'd always he'd always shake his thumb at you like. <laughs> all right sky whatever but anyway so we're going through we're following the Savoldis, and we're we're going through a toll booth uh somewhere <laughs> probably the, uh, the um massachusetts turnpike so they blow through the toll but then stop like they went through it but then stopped all of a sudden like the the person in the toll booth kind of like went out to like i guess go get their money the the um 
the the trunk pops open and out jumps a naked sky low low with three dollars in his hands and he gives it to the woman and he jumps back in there and he's gone. Just catch me out. It's three dollars. So that's a good one. And you know what? I got I got a rib for you. That this one's this one's a little quick, but seeing naked midgets is always funny to me. But to see that jump out of the back of the trunk that that was pretty cool. Oh, God, <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. We got, I got one. Um, making a film, right? I don't know what the, I don't know what, but he would instead of pointing at you, he would just he would point with his thumb. I mean, it's memorable if nothing else. And here's a good one. It involved me, and I, I'm comfortable with this because this wasn't even dirty, but it's a fun story. Um, okay. My first week in Memphis, um, that was a great crew there. It was. Jeff Jarrett, um, uh, Scott Steiner, Bill, uh, Billy Travis, Brickhouse Brown, uh, Robert Fuller, Cactus Jack came in later, and it was great because I knew Mick from working the Indies up in, uh, you know, up in uh, the Northeast. So when he got down there, I was already there a few weeks. I was like, oh, good, because they called us Yankees. I got another Yankee here, and I was like, good. I, I, Cactus was there. We actually had some really good matches too. So I don't want to forget with Cactus, we had some really good matches ourselves. But anyway, so the first week I'm in there. Um, I'm ready to go out and I'm wrestling Tojo Yamamoto in the Evansville. I, I don't even know if they call it a Coliseum. It was a smaller building, but Evansville was always our stop on, on um, Wednesday nights. It was uh, Memphis was Monday. Tuesday was Louisville. Wednesday was uh, Evansville spot shows on Thursday, Friday, Saturday was TV live TV in Memphis. Then you would drive back to Nashville, have a show that night. And then Sunday was another spot show. You always have one day off a week. My day off was Thursday. But anyway, so I'm just brand new into the territory, getting to know things. They're going to put me over against Tojo Yamamoto. Now, Tojo was a big star back then, but he, he was older then. So they were using him and using him to put me over because I was new in there. So I guess they got to give me a couple wins, you know, before they decided that, yeah, we're not going to give you a huge push or whatever. But anyway, so I'm excited. I'm standing at the door on the opening match. And uh, so Billy Travis walks over to me and goes, Hey, Ray, I, I saw some of your matches. Um, really good stuff, man. You're, you're really good, and you're going to make it here. So get out there and, and have a good match. And I look out there, look out the door, and I go, Billy, the lights are still on. There's nobody in the ring. And he goes, no, no, that's okay. Just, just go ahead out there. Go ahead out. You know, <laughs> your, your, your first match, go on out, get ready. I go, again, I go, you know, I'm, I'm new to the territory, but I'm not new to wrestling. There's nobody in the ring. The fans are still kind of milling around. The show hasn't started yet. But so Billy decides to tweak my ego. He goes, I'm telling you this, Ray. If the office sees what I saw on you these last few days, they're going to love you. Get out there. Fire yourself up. Get out that door. So I'm now I'm buying it. All right, Billy, going. So I bust out the door, and I jump in the ring. And I'm looking, and, like, the house lights are still on. And all right, I'm walking around. Now, Frank Morrell was the, um, the, like the head referee then, the older guy. Frank Morrell actually was a tag team partner of Charlie Fulton also got me over there too. So I'm in the ring. Frank Morrell, there was a stage there in Evansville too. So he's sitting on the stage and he gets on the house mic. He goes, hey, kid, get back in the locker room. The show hadn't started yet. And the people <laughs> just start laughing. And I, go, <laughs> I can't stand. So now I got to get out of the ring and go back to the locker room. I'm going, Billy is in tears by the time I get back there. Now, Brickhouse Brown comes up too, and they're both laughing. 
right? And I'm going, oh man. And Billy's like, welcome to Memphis, you know? And then <laughs> I was like, all right, that's cool. So anyway, now I'm working. I'm getting ready to go. Now, Brickhouse and Billy, I didn't know, worked this thing out. Brickhouse somehow snuck around me and locked the door from the outside. So I'm ready. Tojo's in the ring, and I can look, and I see him out there, and they hit my music, and I'm ready to go, and I crash the door, like one of those, those crash door handles, and it doesn't open, <laughs> and it doesn't open, and the, the music's going, and I won't, now I'm panicking because I'm, I'm the first match. I can't get out the door. I can't get out. I'm the I'm one. What the hell is going on here? Well, Brickhouse locked the door, and I didn't know. One of the fans actually came out, and I guess you could just open it from there. And he opened up the door. He goes, you can come out now. And then again, everybody's <laughs> laughing. And I go in the ring. I'm going, oh, my God. This is this is my first week in the business and uh, in the territory. And they're all just – they're all in on it. They're all laughing. I get back, you know, and I just felt – I said, I, I'm going to get you both. So Billy, I got back one time. Billy was funny because Billy was one of these guys that – when he, he never wore socks, he, he just wore his boots. And then, so I said, all right, I'm going to get him. And this isn't real creative, but I had a tube of toothpaste in my, uh, in my bag. So when Billy's, he would only put his boots on right before he got out there. So he'd be walking around the, the locker room barefoot. So I squirted a whole tube of toothpaste in his boots. So right when he was getting ready to go, he put them on. Now to Billy's credit, he never sold it. I mean, he knows no sold it on me. And then worked, had his match, got when he got back to the dress room, he just took his boots off and went directly to the shower and, and he didn't sell it. So that's actually the best way to do it, you know? So I got it. So Brickhouse, here, here's where the road part goes. I still got to get Brickhouse. So we're coming home from Memphis the next week because um, Memphis, when you got done, you had to drive back to Nashville. All the boys lived in Nashville. I think it's I-65. It's either I-65 or I-40. I think it's I-65. But anyway, in the middle, it's about a three-hour drive from Memphis to Nashville. Now I had, I still had my truck, the one pickup that I was telling you before, which only the one seater. My partner was uh, Sean Baxter. We end up, um, we lived together down there. He was, he did a real, like a hair metal gimmick thing. It was really weird looking. I mean, he looked like um, the guy from Rat. I don't know if you remember, it was like an eighties rocker group. He did like a, like kind of a heavy, heavy metal rocker gimmick, but we, we got along real good. So we end up um, getting, we, we got an apartment in Nashville. So Brick didn't have a ride back. He goes, you think I could ride with you guys? Oh, sure, Brick. Come on. Just then. So the three of us are riding back halfway through the trip. Now, he said in the middle of this ride, it's nothing. It's darkness out there. I mean, it's really, really dark. And the boys would always have some beer in the car. We used to drink. You know, that that was that time you drink in the car and nobody really did anything. So halfway there, really in the pitch dark of nowhere, Brick goes, man, I got to take a leak. So he goes to get out of the car. and He goes, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't leaving me on the side of the road. I'm taking your partner with you. So he grabs Sean out. He says, I know you ain't going to leave your boy here or whatever. So he takes him out. As soon as they both got out, I hit the gas. Boom. And I went about, about a mile down the road into the darkness. And I sat there with the beer and waited for them to walk up. And, and I said, sorry, Sean, but I had to get bricked. They had to walk like a mile in the darkness to get, get up to me. So that's a clean road story, you know, but not uh, as funny as a naked the... midget. But... <laughs> I'm never going to go over that one. <laughs> that's going to make me laugh for a while. I can just see. Yeah, I can, I can picture it so clearly in my mind that it's just, yeah. Well, you know, we've all got our things, Josh. We've all got our well, things. Have you into? I'm not judging. <laughs> oh, gosh. So that's, so that's a clean one. That was a clean yeah. one there, but yeah. There was, I, I wish I could. Anything, listen, if anybody ever stops you and says, let me tell you a story about the Iron Sheik 
sit back because it's going to be funny. Because so, he was sit hilarious. Sit back and strap yourself in because we all know so, that the Iron Sheik was mental. So funny. I, I, I'll, all right, now you guys are getting me. All right, here's one. <laughs> King Kaloa, uh, Mike Kaloa, is a guy that I – another guy. Him and Tom Brandy have been like my longest uh, friends in the business. Tom Brandy did the Salvatore Sincere gimmick. He was uh, Johnny Gunn in WCW. And Kaloa just has been around – it seems like forever. He's still working. I I, I don't. I, I still can't get over the fact that he's still working shows. You know, drive all over the country and work shows. But um, so Kalua says, and Kalua used to always do the funniest um Iron Sheik imitation. And uh, I wasn't there for this one, but he said Sheiky was like, Kalua, let's let's get a beer. He's like, uh, bars right there. And Kalua knew this place. He goes, um, Sheiky, that that's a gay bar. We, we, you know, let's go somewhere else. She goes. Those gays are okay. Don't wait. Let's go to gay bar. <laughs> so they go in there, and Kalua's like, "Oh my!" They walk in there, and it's it's like you ever see that one scene? I think in Police Academy where they go in like the, the Blue Oyster thing, and like the music's going, and there's a bunch of gay guys. So they sit down at the bar. This is Kalua. I'm, I'm telling the story secondhand from Kalua. So the guys, the one gay guy comes up to him, and and he's like, "Oh, you're the Iron Sheik. That's right, I'm the Iron Sheik. You know what?" You gays, I like you guys. You're not okay with me. You guys are, how about you buy the Iron Sheik some beer? Buy him, me and my friend Kalua, buy us some beer. Oh, yeah, sure. Buy him a couple rounds or whatever. So then something happens now. I don't know if they did this at the bar or whatever. The Sheik says, you you got any gimmick? Any gimmick? Well, you know what Sheik's looking for. He's looking for a little, yeah. So yeah. I said, I don't know if this was right out in the open or whatever, but the guy says, uh, yeah, I got some. So he opens up and and she just hands and the sheik grabs it. And I guess he had a little spoon and he went, oh, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, you're so good. Oh, so anyway, to make a long story short, he does the entire whatever the guy had in there, gave it back to him, drank his beer and he gave him a boot pat and says, you gays are okay. Let's go, Kalua. And they walked out of the bar, drank his beer, did his blow and just walked right out. <laughs> a gay bar. I think you want to fit right in in your Madonna. You know, with your with your hair metal party, you could have been metal and Madonna. I mean, yeah. Well, you should. Like I said that Sean Baxter character. If you see it, I said, and he was a good wrestler too. But he was real thin, super white, had the white hair straight up. He looked like he just stepped out of like an MTV, um, you know, of a hair band. It was it was really cool. <laughs> Metal and Madonna, Eminem. That really, we could have done that, yeah. But I, that was when I put some weight on, though. So yeah, uh, I, I couldn't go back. I, I, not I don't think I could. Not as convincing. <laughs> I, I was, wasn't fit. Yeah, I was like my biggest in Memphis. I was about two twenty. Actually, I got up to about two thirty, but I was too big. Um, so I ended up going back down around two twenty. That was like my ideal weight, you know. And there was mm. times that actually I was bigger but didn't look as good. And there were times where I was smaller, just depending on which way the weight was. But I was usually right around the 220, 225 mark. That's as big as I got. That was, I was comfortable with that. And I could move like that because, yeah. you know, you put on, I put on too much weight. And, and of, of course I told you, I was supposed to be at this big high flyer, but you look at today's product and I didn't do as much flying as they thought we were high flyers back then. That's the way that the business has changed, though, isn't it? So, yeah, and I, ha I have to say as well, that is the most Iron Sheik thing I've ever heard in my life. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and listen, that don't scratch the surface <laughs> if, with him. If someone told me that story and said, who do you think did that? I'd be like, that's the Iron Sheik. Yeah. 
he he was he does another one. He would think that if we were out, wrestlers are notoriously cheap, really, really bad. In fact, so bad that I started like getting my own check when we would go out because it was embarrassing. Because first of all, we're very not me, but I'm just saying wrestlers in are, are very demanding and very loud. So if you're a waitress and you have ten of us there. There was always guys that were just loud and loud and, and going to make you run and do anything. And when the tip came along, it was like, it was so embarrassing. I was leaving extra money because guys would just not throw a dollar or something like that. Mm. So Shiki used to think that if he gave you an eight by 10 promo picture, that was pay for his dinner. So he would go have dinner at place. I remember we were at a hotel the one time and, and he goes to the guy, he goes, well, you know, here's your check. And Shiki goes, I take good care of you. I'll give you, I give you eight by 10 sign. And they're like, Oh God, waiter was like, okay, whatever. He didn't know that, it, that Sheik meant that was like, that was you know, um, <laughs> instead of in lieu of payment. So he went there, she goes back to his room. Well, this was one of those things with the, the, the restaurant was connected to the hotel and me and me and Taz, again, we were staying in the room next to it. So the guy's there and we hear bang, 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 bang. It's the waiter. He's banging on the Sheik's door and saying, is he in there? I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. Whatever he said, because he sniffed me. He, you know, he didn't pay for his meal. He just gave me a picture. So I don't. He's banging on that door for a long time, 15, 20 minutes. He kept coming back. So I have the phone rings, and Taz picks it up, and he says like, "Hello," and he hears Sheik on the other side. Taz, are they gone? And like, um, no, Sheiky's still out here. Okay, tell me when he's gone. I gave that jabroni a picture. I don't know what he wants. And I'm like, oh boy, hey, let's get paid, Sheik. But yeah, that was a Sheik. Sign of sign an autograph and yeah, that's that's in lieu of payment. A Sheiky uh, uh, autograph eight by ten. It's fine. He should have just charged three hundred dollars for it. Then he could have paid for the meal as well. <laughs> Sheiky's one of a kind. That he is. Oh dear. Um, so you mentioned earlier, obviously, that you haven't been in the ring for what close to sort of 12 or 13 years. So mm-hmm. it, it sounds, sounds like it's safe to say you're officially retired from in ring competition. Then, uh, what caused you to decide to retire? The, the, the main thing for me you know, when I really <clears throat> stopped taking bookings was um 2001. Uh, I got in in 87, and my last match pretty much then when I stopped taking bookings was 2001, I was only 33, but I, I never wanted to play wrestler. I, I was doing this because I wanted a job. I wanted the WWF job. I, I wanted to make a lot of money and I want to be on TV. And the, the WWF carrot was getting further and further away. And I, and I've had spots where I've, I've worked with Jim Cornette and Jim Cornette knew me. And there was times where he was on the booking committee and I knew Cornette didn't like me. I mean, he didn't like me, not as a person, but I know he says, he used to tell me, he goes, oh my God, how much do you think you can keep doing that surfer game? How can you do it? You know, it's a joke. You know, don't you know that it's, I said, yeah, it's comedy, you know, but I don't think Jim's real big into comedy. And and that's, if that's him, that's fine. You know, I, I disagree. I thought that comedy could work, especially at my size. And, uh, and I know that he, and I, um, uh, what was Ross doing? There was guys that did know of me. And I just knew that like, I wasn't going to, I actually even went, it was before they had the performance center. Dr. Tom Pritchard was, um, was a trainer at one time. I'm going to say it was around 98, 99, 1999, somewhere around there. And I showed up there one day and he looked and he gave me a big hug. Cause I knew him from ICW and Dr. Tom says, Hey, what are you doing here? And I go, I'm looking for a job. I said, you think I can work out with your guys? And he goes, well, 
yeah, I mean, you can, but you know, it's mostly, you know, these are, these are all young kids. Not that I was old at that time. I was probably 31, 32, but I ran through the drills and everything. And, and he goes, listen, I took a tape of you. I'll, I'll put it in anybody's hands. And I mean, they kind of know of you. There's enough guys on the booking committee that, that know of you, but nothing <clears> came <throat> out of it. So at that point, again, I didn't want to be like some of the guys that get their brains scrambled for nothing for a couple hundred here and there and just take chair shots and get beat up and all that. So at that point, I said, you know what? Um, I think I'm done. I just met my wife, who's um, at the time we were just dating in 2001. And we started going out and I never had weekends off because I was always on the road. And I was like, it's kind of nice, like, you know, finding somebody and, uh, and, you know, spending time and going on dates instead of, you know, working all the weekends. Cause I was working a regular job then too. I drive a truck. And uh, so on the weekends I would do the wrestling. I just started thinking that I'm enjoying at the time she just, like I said, I was dating her, but it, was, it ended up being my wife. And I enjoyed that. And I, uh, I had about a handful of matches until 2007 that was my last time in, in the ring. I wrestled a guy named uh, Nicky Benz. And uh, it was fun because actually he did a, um, like a lounge singer gimmick. So it was great. So we worked comedy. And I, and I worked a couple matches with him. And they were like, the, the guy that ran the show that booked, he's like, Ray, you're back. I'm like, nah, I, I did it because my steps, my wife actually never saw me in the ring. She, she saw me on TV, but she never saw me live. And I got a phone call. Like the phone calls were getting low, less and less, you know, and, but when they rang, she would say, you got a, a message of a, somebody wants to book you. I'm like, yeah, don't worry. I'm not, not taking it. And no, just the one day she goes, so you don't want to wrestle? I go, well, do you want to see me? And it wasn't far from where I lived. She goes, well, I never saw you live. So the reason I actually took the bookings in 2007 is because my wife never got a chance to see it before. Mm -hmm. So that, that's why I end up taking the bookings just so she could see it. And uh, now with my eight-year-old, uh, um, the one guy that I used to work for, this guy, uh, Tommy Fierro, who actually is just starting again to start running shows. And he has one actually in September. And he says, hey, Ray, you, you, you have any interest in getting in? I'm like, well, I, I told you I had my uh, rotator cuff uh, fixed in my arm. So I said, not this time, Tommy, but maybe keep me in mind because I'm sure my son would like to. Now, my son has seen all the tapes and stuff like that of me wrestling but he's never seen me live. So might it's be very a different you, to see you live as opposed to might on tape, be a isn't chance. Yeah. You might see a one more Ray Odyssey match. Ooh. So I'm going to leave that door open and listen, just, I'm sure it won't be that carrot. <laughs> it'll, it'll be, it'll be a lot of comedy, a lot of ass biting, a lot of, you know, stuff like that. So personally, yeah. I say we should bring back the Madonna, the Madonna gimmick. Yeah. One night only. And right now, <laughs> You know what? Whenever I told you before when I was in high school and I said it was embarrassing because I thought I was a better looking girl than guy, if I put that stuff on, I'd say I'm probably a better looking guy now. It would be, it would be <laughs> I've, got, I've got another uh, question for you. Do you uh, think that your son will ever follow in dad's footsteps kind of thing and maybe get in the ring in himself? Kyle, if he does, I will kick the living hell out of him i don't want him to do anything with this business and it's it's only because i love my son so much i don't want to see him going through the stuff that i went through the pain that i go through now i mean i've had five shoulder surgeries i have a fused neck where they had to take one of the discs out of my neck uh because it was pushing against the spinal cord uh my back is a mess my knees are a mess and this is coming from a guy that basically did comedy 
you know, I didn't do hardcore stuff like a lot of, uh, mm. you know, my brothers did. I get, given you know, that you were in ECW to, to come out of that and not have done the things that they did and still yeah. be that badly injured over time. Yeah, and still it, all those... It tells you that the business is physical. It is. Yeah. And, and you know, and again, it, it's I haven't done anything like <clears> those guys are doing every <throat> single night, guys. I don't know how... Like guys like Sabu can even walk around. He's amazing. I don't. I don't know how he does it. You know, it, it's crazy. And guys I've got a theory that stuff. Sabu's dead. And no one's just. Just no one's told him yet. Yeah. Because he, he's just. <laughs> I don't know there's how certain, he does it. It's the walking guys, zombie. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing. And and Cactus, it's the same thing with him now. And now he's retired. But he, it's so sad. And it's funny because it's not funny, but it's um. You see an old wrestler, and we all have kind of the same walk. It's that it's that slow walk that's trying to be a little bit faster, but but you you are hobbled, and but mm. you don't want to you don't want to walk like an old man. So you walk, so you try to walk a little faster, but you can see it's that same old hobble. It's that same. Yeah. Old, they, we all kind of do it, you know, and and it's 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 sad that I see what a lot of my my brothers are going through, and they don't have health care. I mean, I'm lucky because I fell into a job, my trucking job. At least I have health care and stuff like that. Where these guys have nothing. I mean, you see on a you see one these um you know uh, I see all the time where the uh, the GoFundMe because somebody needs a knee replacement or a hip replacement because they can't pay for it and you're thinking man that guy made so much money back in the day and now he's dead broke and you know mm. it's sad it really is yeah it is it is you're absolutely right what's your life like now you know are you working still or did you make millions and millions in your career and just living a life of luxury? I'm guessing it's not the latter. Undefeated in WWF, <laughs> why wouldn't it be? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I um I was well, I was notoriously cheap like everyone else. You learned how to live on the road when you weren't making a lot of money. And I didn't make that much money, but again, I'll give it to King Kalua. He taught me how to, you know, you you take the you you pile six guys into a car and you drive there. You pile six. Well, it was always four guys and two midgets in a, in a, um, in a room. What you did was you flip for the, you take the mattresses off. Okay. So you had two mattresses and two box springs. So you flip to see who got the mattress. The mattress was a good one. Whoever got stuck on the box spring, you, you put um, the, the comforter down there. So it was that one midget in the bathroom, in the bathtub, one midget in the, uh, in the drawer. So that's, you know, one in we, the boot we of the just, car. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, but it was amazing the stuff that you learned to do on the road. If you want to come home with some money, now there's some guys that just thought they were again they were playing wrestler and they made a couple hundred dollars and they spent it all because they they went and you know got a real nice room at you know at, at a real nice hotel. Instead, we were going to these little you know hole in the walls that Kalua always knew. He knew every single place. He knew the cheapest where. And this was before cell phones and all that stuff. We would do everything off of a road atlas. I had a big road atlas, you know, that where we traveled around and you always circled certain towns and you have notes that say like, um, like when, when in Augusta, Maine, eat at this place that had an all you can eat buffet for $8, you know, or they, there was a lot of guys that said they always did the bologna blowouts. Well, we didn't do that because Kahlua knew the places to eat, all you could eat buffets that we didn't spend anything. So I really yeah. never had those ones where guys were saying, yeah, we get a, a, a loaf of bread and a pack of bologna and that's what we ate on the road. Kahlua was the best. He goes, no, 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 we got a spot. We're only going to pay like eight bucks, you know? So you, you knew how to save money. So what I did was I saved all my money and I got my house and that was it. And again, I, I work a regular job too. I drive a truck. So I'm good. You know, I'm mm. nowhere near like, you know, with, 
um, like rich or anything like that, but I'm comfortable and I have a nice life, a nice wife and, uh, and a great kid. I coach baseball and, uh, you know, we're, everything's good. And to be honest, that's the best you can hope for. I mean, you, you, you had your career, you won some championships, you're undefeated in the WWF. You had, no, a good, you, had a, you had a good run and you come out of it with your health still intact and you're comfortable. What and you're alive. You yeah. You're yeah. out of the wrestling business yeah. alive. Like, bloody it's, impressive. You know, Josh, and it really is sad. The, the amount of guys, and not just guys I knew, guys I was friends with. I mean, guys mm. that just like, I trained with from the Monster Factory. Let's go. Chris Candido, uh, Pitbull One. Um, John, well, Johnny Grunge, Ted Petty. I mean, and Ted Petty was a sad one because Ted Petty wasn't one that, like, it wasn't a drug-induced um, heart attack. Like, uh, Teddy, Teddy very rarely did anything. He'd have a beer here and there, but Teddy just had heart problems through his um, through his family, and um, he yeah. was actually on a double shot on the road, going from one show to the other, and died in the car going from one. But it's just the, mm. the amount of guys that I keep thinking. Tony Rumble. I mean, he was another one that was a shock because another thing, he wasn't a big. I think he smoked some pot every once in a while, but then a beer here and there. He wasn't anywhere near wild one. Like when you said when Grunge died, I almost went, yeah, that that was going to happen, you know. But you know, all the guys that the friends that I've lost, you know, actually get numb to it. And and a guy will die, and the first ones you always get on the phone, it's or, or get on the internet with it's like. Tom Brandy, Mike Kalua, certain guys that I've still been in touch with over the years. And it's a shame because it seems like we only get together anymore when somebody dies, you know, mm, it's like, yeah. oh, I'll see you at the funeral or whatever, but it's, it's, it's upsetting. And I'm really surprised that somebody hasn't done more because if this happened in the NFL with all these guys dying so young, they, they'd have to figure out something that's going on. It's almost like, oh, another wrestler died. No big deal. It's, it's really disturbing and alarming. And I'm surprised that, there's nobody that's going after like Vince McMahon because he's a lot of guys have died on his watch too. And he seems like anytime it's brought up, he actually gets belligerent about it. Like, don't you ever blame me for that? Well, when guys work such hard schedules all the time and they don't get days off and all that, and they have to go to painkillers. And I mean, really that's, that's the biggest problem. The whole, the oxycodone, <clears throat> all the, the Percocets and the, and the drinking that that's yeah. the biggest killer. There's the prescription meds. They get yeah. hooked on it, but they don't, it's listen now guys some guys do it for recreation but the main reason a lot of these guys get hooked on is because you gotta be in the ring the next night if you don't you don't get paid and if you continue like this then you lose your spot so it becomes a habit just keep taking pills so i can get in the ring and get in the ring and then i mean i don't know if you can see but obviously my my idol was eddie guerrero how old was guerrero he he wasn't 38 40 38 you know this is it's it's disturbing it really is and and i wish and I'm the shop steward for my um, the place I work that I drive a truck for. Um, I, I really there's there's been times it, it's gotten actually past me now that I'm in my 50s. But there was a time I was thinking I wish I could unionize these guys because I kind of have an in no one being a mm. shop steward and handling contracts and stuff like that and going to the owners and demanding stuff like you know health care and benefits and and time off and things like that. And the boys need it. They really do. Yeah. It's it, it's it's really bad that. Guys can go their whole career, not not get even paid vacation or health care or, or some kind of retirement. Oh, my God, there's no pension. There's nothing, you know, and it, these guys are 
they get that all that money, at least like in my generation, and guys go through it. They don't think about tomorrow. They don't put yeah. something away. You know, I was lucky and I always was I always put away something, you know, for later. Always like like just even getting stuff like CDs and IRAs and, and putting money away because I knew I didn't want to end up like that too. But I also have a job that has a pension too. And I really wish I said it when I was younger that I would have got in and, and really got the boys together and said, we need to unionize, you know, even if I'm not a wrestler anymore, you guys need to unionize because it's, it's, it, this, these deaths have to stop. Hmm. Yeah. I don't even know the business anymore. Guys, do, do they even, does the WWE, do they even do house shows anymore? It always oh. seems like uh, I, whenever I was tuning in, it was like they had just TV shows and pay-per-views and, you know, it, it wasn't like you went on the road anymore. I remember like watching the WWF back in the day as like, you know, the truck would go by the commercials. Watch this Saturday coming to Allentown, PA, and your favorite star, you know, Hulk Hogan will be there. Then yeah. the next night, you know, Sunday, June 5th, over at Allen, uh, back to, um, you know, Philadelphia. And they could be on the road, but they were spot, they were just spot house shows that weren't televised. I was just wondering mm. if they were starting to get back to that because it always seemed like it's just nothing but TV and pay per views anymore. Yeah. It's pretty much the way it is at the minute. Yeah. But uh, I think that pretty much wraps it up here from us for this showing of the Real Wrestling Podcast. Thank you very much to Ray for joining us. It's been an absolute yeah. pleasure to Thank talk you. to you. And, uh, I'm never going to forget the image of a, of a midget popping out of a, of a trunk. Josh isn't <laughs> going to let me live down the Madonna thing either. Too. Oh, none of us are. Yeah, yeah, guys, listen, this was a lot of fun on my part too. It's been a long time since, you know, somebody actually cleared what Ray Odyssey actually thought about something. So thank you very much. You guys were great hosts. Kyle, Josh, Paul, all of you. And uh, if we had to do it, we didn't even get to like the Samoan story. So your, your fans, oh, we'll, go you'll, look that we'll up. We'll be back. Yeah, be back yeah I'd like to come back. back. Come here for a second. All right, so and my, my this is Surfer Ty Odyssey. Oh, and, Surfer oh, Ty. That's that my, my best buddy in the world. And I just wanted him to see. <laughs> These guys are all the way in another country, all the way across the pond in England. Yay. And we're talking on, on on the internet to them. It's nighttime here. Yeah, wow. it's nighttime here. <laughs> you know what? Talking to you guys now, I'm going to go and go here. I'm hitting the pool because it's still only it's oh. 10 after 5 here and it's still warm out. So oh. I'm hitting the pool with a beer. So again, oh, guys, man. thank you very much. No worries. Once again, uh, thanks for joining us on the Real Wrestling Podcast. As ever, smash that like button, hit the subscribe button, help us get to a thousand subscribers before the end of the year. Follow us on all our social media channels and we'll see you next time.